the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I speak to Mike Gillette. Mike has a life story that reads like an action-adventure novel, a life which has proven to be his own best case study for goal attainment. He was a poor, scared, and scrawny kid who grew up amidst a backdrop of extreme violence and substance abuse. A kid who ultimately became an army paratrooper, SWAT commander, government counter-terrorist consultant, bodyguard to Fortune 500 CEOs, and a record-breaking motivational strongman whose feats have been documented by Guinea's World Records and Ripley's Believe It or Not. In this episode, we discuss mindset, emotional regulation, and success habits. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. Here's my first question for you, Mike. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? It was interesting when I saw the name of the podcast uh, because its uh, I don't specifically use that phrase. Uh, I use something very similar to that when I talk about what uh, I consider to be a desirable end state. And a lot of the materials that I teach and sort of the worldview that informs those teachings is about something I refer to as being self-contained, as being not dependent on others. It's simply another way to say what you're talking about. So uh, when I saw that, I had a sense that we probably had uh, some things in common just in terms of how we see things and perhaps how best to solve problems. So to me, being self-reliant is, is just that, is feeling uh, as though you have the resources and the autonomy to solve problems. But part of that feeling comes from knowing that you do, knowing that you've prepared yourself, you've uh, kept yourself informed, uh, rather than just uh, a presumptive attitude that uh, you're entitled to, to be self-reliant. I think self-reliance is... Uh, something that we aspire to and i think it's something that we build towards simply in the way that we approach bettering ourselves and uh ultimately i think that when we are self-reliant we're we're much more useful to other people we have a greater capacity to be more helpful we have a greater capacity to uh, to be compassionate citizens in the world yeah i really like that last part because i think some people think uh, when they hear the term self-reliance that it's this narcissistic self-absorbed kind of mindset but what you hinted to at the end there suggests otherwise right yeah i think that's a that's a very common sort of misconception the idea you know if if i'm striving to be self-reliant that that somehow means i'm i'm pulling back or i'm I'm less concerned about my, my fellow uh, man, and that's, that's not how I see it. Uh, but if we don't clarify these things, no one will know how we're seeing them. That's very true. What is your take on 
how the modern world is right now in the Western world specifically, because that's, I guess, is our experience and how self-reliant do you think people are? Or do you feel that they've lost their ability to be self-reliant or forgotten what that actually means? That's about two to three hours worth of discussion right there, Rodney. Um, <laughs> simply because of the... <laughs> give, me, give, me, give, me the give me the cliff notes version. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The, the context is, is so wide open because the, um, yeah, I'll, I'll comment about life in the States because it seemed like the world shared the pandemic, but the United States uh, was sort of the flashpoint for the, the second sort of uh, civil discontent period that we're, we're in. And of course, that's manifesting to different degrees of severity depending on where in the States you are. But of course, some of, some of those attitudes and indignations have migrated across the sea and we're seeing a lot of uh, demonstrations and so forth uh, elsewhere. But I think that um, the, the pandemic was, was an, sort of an initial uh, period of time where people had the luxury of time. Uh, it was sort of imposed upon them. To, to think and reflect. Now, some of that thinking and reflecting had to do with those people who had just been crushed financially. They had lost their means of, of making a living. And um, I don't care how self-reliant a person feels when things are going well. Obviously, when things uh, push us in unexpected ways, um, that, that, that's the real test of, of what level of uh, character we, we've built in the, in the hunt for self-reliance. And I think that there was a lot of, um, uh, a lot of just sort of free floating angst uh, during that period. And it was a sort of a strange thing for me. I have uh, products that I sell online that have to do with cultivating these types of characteristics. And you can look at when the pandemic started and when things really started to ramp up and you can see almost a, an identical uh, relationship between our product sales, which suggests to me that a lot of people were really exploring ways to manage the, the feelings that are a logical byproduct of such an illogical seeming time. So certainly there's going to be a segment of the population that when confronted with unimaginable stress will, uh, will fall into more uh, temporary solutions. You know, we'll, we'll gamble and drink and, you know, do whatever we do online. But I do think that there was a, there was a constituency out there that was looking for ways to, to manage themselves or make themselves more robust internally to navigate this, uh, this period of time. So that was the, the first part. But then we had this, um, the, the second situation. And uh, I'm not an expert in race relations. I'm not a sociologist. But there are aspects about what I see with violence that has been perpetuating. Uh, say, for example, I have a son-in-law. He is a new police officer in Portland, Oregon. Um, it's been a week and a half, a week and a half, I'm sorry, a month and a half of endless demonstration, endless violence, endless property damage. Um, and ironically, because he's right on the front lines, he'll tell you that uh, almost all of the people who are agitating uh, are Caucasian. They are not uh, 
what might, people might believe to be the aggrieved uh, racial party in question. So um, that that right there is an interesting sort of discussion. You know why why the endless uh, compulsion to break things, to to burn things, and and so forth. And I think that there's part of that we can sort of trace to a, a recent sort of attitudinal trend culturally, which is this idea of victimhood, that, that people are walking around, and this is particularly conspicuous in the United States. Um, I'm a white male. I have no victimhood whatsoever. I am a person of, of influence, of power, ostensibly. You know, of course, we can point to many, you know, white males who have no social standing, no resources, no, uh, no much of anything. But then when we look at uh, other, you know, racial or ethnic groups, there's, there's sort of like this, this evolving, you know, spectrum of, of victimhood. And, you know, the more layers of victimhood you have on you, it's, it's almost like, uh, you know, a, a badge of honor through the prism of people who, who look at the world in this, you know, very specific social justice sorts of ways. And I think that on the one hand, it's important for us to, to be mindful of history. It's important to be mindful of frameworks within any culture that uh, aren't working for everybody. But I think that, uh, as it often does with humans, the pendulum will swing widely. And I think that's where we are right now. I think we are in a place where we're so concerned about our victimhood that it makes it nearly impossible to even conceive of a phrase like self-reliance because self-reliance is the solution to victimhood. Self-reliance is the solution to feeling as though what, whatever your situation, whatever categories you might fall into, if you're convinced that the world is uh, is treating you a certain way for undeserved reasons if you are being excluded or oppressed or whatever so long as you feel that way your brain is going to find things that will seem as though they're actually real legitimate pieces of evidence to support that premise Be because you know that's how our, our mind works which is why people who tend to be optimistic tend to stay optimistic people who aren't tend to not and I think that it's because of the prevalence of, of this sort of attitude of victimhood, we have uh, not only uh, a large swath of, of society that is not seeking it, they would probably tell you that it's impossible to find. It's an illusion because we're so oppressed. The people in power have so much influence over our lives that we can't possibly escape that, which you know, uh, obviously people like me would, would differ from that worldview. So that, that's kind of how I see the current events informing attitudes about self-reliance and then what is the opposite of self-reliance. Yeah, I think both of us would agree that, I mean, I don't necessarily buy into all of that. And I can understand the historical context, as you noted. The thing that always highlights in my mind and coming where I came from, and I came from government housing, and there wasn't a lot of opportunities for me growing up. And I was kicked out of the house when I was 17 by my abusive alcoholic mother. I was sleeping on the streets of Johannesburg. I'm always reminded by that quote by Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning, where he talks about how the ultimate thing that it comes down to is how you choose your attitude in any given set of circumstances. 
And his realization was, and this is somebody who survived the concentration camps in Auschwitz. Right. And, he, and he noticed that you couldn't really tell who was going to make it based on their background, their education, how rich they were, if they came from poverty. All of those things weren't deciding factors. The one thing that was a deciding factor was how they chose to see the situation that they found themselves in, choosing their own attitude and doing the best with what they found themselves within because everybody was in the same boat. This is the thing, right? I mean, it didn't matter in Auschwitz if you came from a wealthy family or you came from a poor family, if you were educated, not educated, everybody was in the same boat. And ultimately, the people that survived were the people that chose their own attitude in any set of given circumstances as Viktor Frankl defines it. I think that's crucial. I think that's really important. Uh, I quite agree. And uh, like you, I have invoked that quote uh, in that specific context any number of times because it's, it seems to be about the most extreme uh, circumstance that we might be able to point to that still has some recency that people can relate to. And it's, it's absolutely true. And yet um, people will cling tenaciously to not doing that because they, they seem to be so invested in, in a worldview where nothing is my fault. And I think there's comfort there for some people because then there's no accountability. You know, I don't have to take responsibility for myself. You know, I can just scream and, and be upset and, and break things. So it's, a, it's an interesting time. So that's a really good uh, pivot point into some of the topics we said we would discuss because I think the things that we're going to talk about are the tools, the strategies, the tactics on how to achieve more self-reliance in your life. Let's talk about mind skills. What do you mean by mind skills? First off, how do you define that? And then we can kind of unpack it and start looking at some real ideas and concepts behind that. When uh, I use the term mind skills, it's simply to, to unify those, those two words or those two ideas uh, to suggest to people who, for whom this is a new thought that you can wield your mind skillfully. And just that, that concept right there is, is a huge thing to try to get people to, uh, to buy into. Because most people, of course, uh, have a, a default setting on their mind that runs everything. And, and running everything is probably uh, overstating it. They're just sort of experiencing everything uh, as it happens without any sense that this movie that they're watching uh, is editable by them. So the first thing that I try to do is convey this idea that all, all of this stuff that feels uh, completely random and feels beyond your control, you can, with practice, uh, over time, start to seize control. You know, you can sort of become your own uh, Steve Spielberg or I don't know a the name of a female director for, for women, but uh, you, you can start to impact that narrative. And then over time, it will look more and more like how you want it to look as opposed to it just looks like it looks because you're sort of subject to the, you know, to the whim of uh, random thoughts. So mind skills is simply that it, it's a means of introducing a particular premise. And then of course you have to uh, convey that this premise is actually real and not just some 
you know, elusive ideal that maybe only 5% of people can experience. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for challenging the way that you think, because most people, when they're having an experience, if they do reflect on their thinking at any point in time, they see it as reality and not necessarily what it really is, which oftentimes is, is a hodgepodge, a mix-up of fragments of history all mixed together, coalescing in this moment in time, but not necessarily based in any firm reality. In a sense, we're creating stories, we're storytellers, we're creating a narrative in our head. And that narrative, oftentimes not in our best interest, but we will always try to find a way to make it sound like it's the right narrative, right? Because our ego doesn't want to be wrong. So we will always present a narrative that is in the best light for ourselves, but it's not often the best story to be telling. Very, very uh, good. And uh, when you mentioned you know, the, these things that we experience, you know, we perceive those as, as reality. And well, of course we do. Uh, someone would tell us. And the, the next sort of premise that, that I would try to discuss or try to encourage someone to explore is, okay, what's your feeling now? what you're experiencing, that's reality to you. And they would say, yes, I'd say, now, what would you say if I said that is a reality, not the reality? And then, you know, perhaps they would think about that. Then I might suggest that there are other realities available to you using the, you know, the same intellect that you currently have, using the same experiences that you've accrued over your lifetime. It's just that for now, at this moment, you're assembling all of those variables into this particular reality. And uh, you made a good point, too. You know, we, we don't want to be wrong. We, we become invested in this story. I mean, we've basically built a life around that particular story. And if we accept other stories as a possibility, ooh, that sounds like a lot of work, Rodney. You have to build an entirely sort of new set of responses and habits around that. So I think that can also just sound really daunting to people. I think that's a big part of it. I think there's two things there. One, you know, the psychological term for that is confirmation bias, where we confirm everything, you know, in relation to what we want to believe. The second to that would be critical thinking skills that seems to be something that's definitely been lost in our modern era, that ability to hold two opposing ideas and look at them from two points of view, not just one point of view, you know, because if you, it's like when you, when you buy a car, right. And, and it's a special color and you think it's a special color, but then suddenly you look around and there are tons of cars with that color, but you never noticed them before. So that's a confirmation bias in practice, right? It's happening to you. Suddenly you only see what you want to see. And I think it's really important for people to be able to hold two opposing viewpoints and then find themselves in the middle and move from there and not just clinging to the first answer that, that comes into mind because that doesn't always mean that that's the right answer. Yeah, very true. Um, I had an experience uh, very early on back in my law enforcement days and I was responding to a uh, burglar in progress at an electronic store. Somebody had just walked in, grabbed a video camera. Remember back when video cameras weren't built into your phone because there weren't any cell phones yet. And guy had a wire cutters because all of the electronics were sort of cabled for security purposes to a, a metal rack. So he clipped the cable, 
grabbed the, uh, the camera, probably like a thousand dollar item and, uh, started moving towards the door. Security personnel confronted him and, uh, he dealt with them, uh, pretty savagely. And he and I had a, uh, an opportunity to, to talk about life choices in the parking lot when I showed up. And what was interesting about him is that he had just been released from prison, not like a county jail, but actual prison where he'd been doing a multiple year sentence for armed robbery seven days earlier, seven days. Now he walks into an electronic store probably at three in the afternoon. So lots of people, you know, daylight, um, the odds of being successful with this particular activity, walking right up, you know, clipping it, not attempting to conceal his behavior or be surreptitious about it in any way, uh, sort of suggested to me in that moment that uh, he wasn't really looking for the camera. He was looking for a return to normalcy. And normalcy for him was being confined because when I, you know, got back to the station and, you know, looked up on the crude computer, I saw his life story and he had spent most of his adult life, you know, incarcerated. And uh, so when I took, as I took him to the county jail, you know, I, I talked to him because I'm interested in people. And, you know, uh, so what happened today? You know, no leading questions, anything like that. Well, you know, you were there. And I said, um, you're a, you're a smart guy. You've been around, you've, you know, you've got experience. Um, how, how likely do you think it was that someone doing what you did would have gotten away with it? Well, you know, and it, eventually he admitted that he didn't really have an expectation of success. He, he never actually admitted to, I want to go back to jail, but everything that he did, you know, in, in those few moments suggested that he wanted to go back to the world that he knew and he felt like this is how his life was going to be, that there was no option. You know, the premise that his reality was one of several available to him, he would never accept that. Now, maybe he would accept that now. It's you know, been a couple of decades, but that was, and this was very early on in my, uh, law enforcement times. So the, the first year or so, I tended to internalize all of the experiences I had with, with different people because they were so instructive. And I always remembered him and that particular, you know, to you and I, seemingly illogical action. But to him, it was very logical because it was, it was deliberate. It was thought out. It was going to get him back to that thing that he knew where he may not have liked it, but it was known to him. It had a certain degree of comfort simply because of its familiarity. And I think so many people cling tenaciously, you know, to habits and situations because they may not like them. They may complain about them to other people, but, you know, the cocoon of familiarity can be very strong. Yeah, that's very true. As you were talking about that, I was just thinking about this concept of tackling small things to ultimately build to the, to the big thing, right? And what I mean by that is that oftentimes people are so, as you noted, trapped within their thinking processes. They may not necessarily like where they are, but it's familiar. And when we start suggesting that you need to change your mindset, I think it's really important that it's always tied to action rather than just only thinking about the change, but actually doing the change. 
when you suggest that though, most people become overwhelmed. They, you know, maybe fear sets in, apprehension, frustration, because they don't think that they can do it. Then one way to achieve that though, is to suggest smaller things that they can change, be it whatever it may be. It, may, it might just be just tidying up your apartment, you know, just being clean, just getting orderly, because the way your environment is says a lot about how your mind is. You know, it often goes uh, hand in hand, right? You walk into somebody's home, it's completely, well, you know, it's completely chaos, it's messy. Well, a lot of times that's how their mind is, right? And so a starting point would be to do what you can control, things that don't take a lot of effort to change, and then slowly start building that up to the big things because you'll build the confidence over time by tackling the small things, and that will give you the confidence that you need then to take on the bigger obstacles in your life. There's some really good points there, Rodney. Um, the uh, uh, First off, the idea of anchoring uh, a new way of thinking to some sort of action. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big advocate of that when I work with particularly uh, younger people, and that generally only happens in the context of athletics, uh, that will take the form of, I call it homework because that's a term that young people understand, but it's uh, all designed to link a particular you know, thought process or you know, thought technique to some sort of some action. Uh, because trying to talk to people simply about their thoughts with thoughts seeming to the average person as, as though they're something very abstract. It's like, you know, they, they can't really get a handle on that. So uh, connecting thoughts to, to action, I, I think is uh, always important. And, and it can make this process, particularly in the early stages, seem much more attainable because that's the other thing that you alluded to. And I think it's a, a really big deal. Uh, you know, where, where do we start? How can I change the, you know, the way I think? And you talked about, um, you know, organizing one's immediate physical environment and, uh, not to go back to the big pile of police stories, but the, one of the things that I always noticed and I didn't consciously draw the connection at first, but over time it just became so consistently occurring when you go to, uh, to intervene in a situation uh, and the situation generally has to do with people who are acting impulsively or just, you know, have a deficit of coping skills um, or any number of aggravating circumstances, you notice their physical environment. And it was very seldom that I ever went into any physical environment, you know, to deal with people who were, you know, sort of, uh, comfortable in chaos, or I guess I would just say where they perpetuate a lot of chaos in their life, you saw the chaos everywhere. You know, not only did you see, you know, messy, disorganized, you know, physical spaces, but you saw things that were broken and like, you know, were just dirty as though there was sort of a, a sense of resignation that, uh, you know, why even bother? You know, my life is always going to be this way. I'm just going to allow all of this to just, you know, sort of build up around me. And then, of course, there were very extreme cases of that where you know, we would have to uh, remove people from their homes because their homes had become so, you know, overwhelmed just, you know, with, with stuff, which, of course, you know, leads to various health issues and so forth. And 
that uh, sort of resignation uh, was something that I, I saw a lot. And the, the recurring theme I would have with people, you know, it, not just uh, people that I would deal with professionally back then, but people that I will still occasionally encounter, you know, they'll say things like this. And this always just kind of jumps out at me when they say, I can't help it. That's just the way I am. And that's, if that's a person's attitude, that's a very difficult thing to overcome because it's, it's premised in this, I've literally built a fortress of sameness around me. This is how my worldview is. And I'm, I'm just, I'm locking it in and I'm, I'm fortifying it. I'm reinforcing it day in, day out. And again, I think it can take some people back to the comfort of, it's not my fault you know, I'm just this way, you know, uh, it was school, it was my teachers, it was my parents, you know, it was, you know, my basketball coach, it was whatever, it wasn't me, you know, I'm, and, and that sort of takes us back to what we we're talking about a moment ago, this, this idea of victimhood, and how we don't really have the ability to exercise agency over our own lives, to which th those of us who uh, espouse self-reliance would, would obviously argue that point. So when you build those walls around you, and, 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 and I've noted that too, when people say, well, it's just like myself to do X, really, that's just a cop out because then what you don't have to do is you don't have to look inside. You don't have to look at how you're acting, those behaviors, and really go into them and ask yourself the critical question, where does this come from? Because if you have to go down that road and ask, where does it come from? You're probably not going to like where it leads to. And it's going to be a tough road and you're going to have to confront the shadow. You're going to have to confront the skeletons in your, in your closet. But what I've learned is, is that unless you do that, you will never turn your life around because behind every shadow is the light. In every moment of despair, if you are looking at where this came from and why do I find myself where I am now and you are honest with yourself, it's in that very moment that you are then able to change the trajectory of your life. Yeah, I, uh, uh, I'm of the same opinion. And the, um, the way that uh, I typically approach things with people is, you know, I, I always use the metaphor of, well, to get that answer, we need to go deeper. You know, to get that answer, we need, we need to go deeper still. And, of course, that's, that is so upsetting and unsettling to some people. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm done. Uh, I'll, I'll just read your book. You know, I don't really want to, you know, do any, anything that's, that seems difficult. And what's, what's been interesting to me, um, and you know, I, I know you work with a lot of, uh, you know, high performers as well, is that even when you're dealing with somebody who doesn't necessarily think of themselves as broken, uh, there can still be that aversion, you know, to, to digging deep, you know, if uh, they've got something that seems like a routine problem, say it's an athlete, uh, and they're they're very good, they're talented, but their performance is inconsistent, and you know, it might seem you know evident to you that you know you can see some some fear and anxiety in places where where they don't, uh, and they're just uncomfortable with uh, looking at things in that way. So they'll say, well, I guess. I just wasn't motivated that day. I guess, you know, what, whatever the reason is, I, you know, my electrolytes were low, uh, as opposed to all of, all of the stuff that they bring into 
a competition, you know, emotionally speaking. So it's, uh, it's interesting to me that, you know, some people obviously are, are dealing with, you know, trauma and, and some, some very uh, difficult circumstances to overcome. And those are going to be inherently uncomfortable to explore if they want to move forward. But I also find that almost anybody can sort of create or uh, look through, look at things in a certain way that they can make almost anything very uncomfortable. Uh, And sometimes the higher performers, it's, it's because they're, you know, they come from resources, they're talented, uh, they're well-regarded. Anything that might uh, conflict with all of that wonderfulness, they don't really want to look at, you know, because they've they've kind of, again, they've built a particular fortress. Their fortress is attractive, you know, to the outside world, but it's it's incomplete. And there's some points of vulnerability there that they just don't really want to explore. So it's... uh, what has been interesting to me is is seeing uh, how people tend to be more alike than different in that regard. I think a lot of people also, when they're making decisions, they believe that their decision is rational, but we know different, right? We know that decisions are emotional first, rationalized later on. So let's, uh, so let's move into this idea of emotions. How do you view emotions? And then we can potentially look at how we can regulate what oftentimes is referred to as unhelpful emotions, if there's such a thing, because I'd like to get your take on that too. Well, there's a, a, a tremendous uh, spectrum with, uh, with emotions. And uh, I'm in a situation where occasionally I'll come in, I'll do a workshop, I'll see a group of people for 90 minutes, and then that's it. You know, I'm, I, I just disappear. And then there are people that I work with, you know, over long periods of time. So there, there's, there's a 90 minute version. There's the over several years version and there's, you know, different variations in between. So the way that I look at emotions is uh, I look at, uh, at things. I refer to it as the STEDO model, S T E D O it's an acronym. So situations, thoughts, emotions, decisions, outcomes. So I tend to, you know, if we're generalizing, which we have to do sometimes, uh, I look at uh, situations generally will, you know, produce a thought or multiple thoughts. Those thoughts will have uh, an, um, an emotional component attached to them which typically has to do with, you know, our personal history uh, and the, the filters through which we, we look at the world. And then once we experience those emotions, that's when the decision comes. And every decision we make leads to a particular outcome. So it's just that that's kind of like the, the sequence of events. Um, and for some people, uh, even though it, that can perhaps be a little uh, complicated uh, to initially internalize, if, if they can start sort of segmenting things out, uh, it, even that exercise can be helpful to them. Uh, there is, uh, be, because of uh, my age, I'm 58, I grew up uh, as a youth in the 70s. And in the 70s, um, emotions attained a whole level of currency and, and significance that uh, previous generations would, would not have sort of 
bought into that worldview. It's like, yeah, I, I get you're stressed out, but who cares? It's the depression. You know, I get that you're stressed out. Who cares? It's World War II. Um, nobody wants to hear that right now. Um, so in the 70s, uh, you know, there, there was a lot more talk about feelings. People were, were looking at relationships, you know, differently. And, and I think that, uh, you know, some of that was probably productive exploration. I think some of it might have been, you know, slightly misunderstood. You know, the idea that I feel a particular way, therefore I'm going to go with that. And if, if we were to take that attitude to, you know, to an extreme, then we would never do anything of substance because anything of substance is uh, frightening. It just is. It's, it's different. It's challenging. It, it, you know, increases your visibility. It, it causes uh, internal pressure. I mean, if nobody did anything that made them uncomfortable, no one would want to do brain surgery because that's pretty stressful. You know, no one would want to be an astronaut. No one would try to invent things uh, because what if it didn't go well, then you'd be sad. Um, you know, that's sort of our ridiculous extreme version of that type of thinking. So a lot of uh, what I talk about with respect to emotions is uh, simply how much weight are we going to give a particular emotion in a particular circumstance? So um, I deal with uh, people who are ultimately dealing with fear a lot of the time and, uh, and fear can be so inhibitive, uh, inhibitive, inhibiting. Okay. I don't want to make up too many words in, on one podcast. Uh, and so how do you, you guide yourself through that process? Because if, if you're pushing your own boundaries, you're always going to be doing things, you know, that make you uncomfortable. I know that you spent a lot of time uh, teaching people how to not get hit in the face when people are trying to hit them in the face. Uh, uh, it was more than that, but just that isolated aspect alone, what's, what's one of the things that can really bother people getting hit in the face? Uh, it, it's uncomfortable. It's scary. You don't look cool when you're getting hit in the face, you know, so th there are all of these layers just to that simple thing. And even when you uh, create a, a very uh, expedient means of, of dealing with that, that people can find accessible very quickly, uh, you still have to get people uh, to the point where they're willing to, to trust you. You know, so, you know, you, you do this and I, I, I call it the, you know, the, the humorous primate. I don't want to violate any copyrights. Um, and uh, you still have to get people uh, to a place where they're going to engage in that thing where it's physically uncomfortable. It's, you know, it, it's psychologically uh, overwhelming. You know, each, each bit of stimulus is a, is a cognitive event that must be processed. And you know, all, all of those emotions, uh, if, if they didn't do it simply because they were uncomfortable doing it, how much growth would they be missing out on? And eventually you'll get them to the point where they'll do it. And then they'll think you're a genius because, oh my gosh, you're right. I did it and I feel more empowered and this isn't as scary as I thought it was going to be, but it's a journey. And in, in that sort of martial arts context, you are the guide you know, for that journey. And of course, the, the journey was many layers and it was metaphorical for, you know, all, all kinds of things. But I think that 
that's uh, that's that tends to be where I start with respect to, uh, to emotions, uh, and you know, I like to pay attention to them because I like to be you know aware of my own personal landscape, and I want other people to be too. But I still want to do what I want to do, regardless of what the emotion might be telling me. Now, sometimes I'll agree with the emotion. You know, if I'm in the Rocky Mountains and it's a grizzly bear, uh, I'm not going to look at that as an empowering potential moment for me to confront my fear. I'm, I'm going to remove myself. But uh, in less obvious or ridiculous uh, examples, then you know, do we want to be giving more weight to your goal or the emotion? Because oftentimes they'll seemingly be in conflict. And then the, to answer the last part of your question, because I didn't forget, uh, when you talked about uh, categorizing emotions, I typically use, and I didn't come up with this, but uh, some years back I was studying the materials of a, uh, a trainer named Craig Sigel, and he used the term difficult emotions. And I liked that. That resonated with me. Uh, so fear, difficult emotion. Sadness, difficult emotion. But uh, there are times when difficult emotions are completely appropriate and it would be perhaps best in that moment. You know, if, if we just lost someone that we cared about, it's reasonable to be sad. It's difficult, um, but that's not a negative emotion. In fact, the presence of, of the emotion that you're experiencing is, uh, in a sense, honoring, you know, your, your relationship with that person. Uh, and then there's a whole, you know, another road we can go down about, um, you know, once you find that you can make yourself willing to experience emotions that are difficult, then you're sort of on your way to becoming superhuman. Because, you know, the more that we spend time in this space, I think the more often we find that people are oftentimes just afraid of emotions. You know, they're afraid of disappointment. You know, they're, they're afraid of something that doesn't pose uh, a tangible risk. You know, it's, it's a perceived risk or just a perceived discomfort and, and they avoid that. I think there's also value in having what could be termed emotional granularity. And what I mean by that is that people tend to define their emotions in extremes. You know, they'll say, I'm afraid of this. But when you're really honest with yourself, is it real fear or you're just worried? I think it's important too for people to take the time to look at the emotions that they're having and are they classifying it correctly? Because if you're always going to the extreme, that is the thing that becomes the obstacle and stops you from moving forward, where in fact, it may not be the extreme. And then that makes you feel better about the situation and are more able and capable to deal with the place that you find yourself in. I love that point, Rodney. And uh, I've often said that what I do uh, is really teach communication skills. Now, some of those communication skills are internally directed, but um, language is huge. And, and you hit on something that, that's dead on. So many of us use language either carelessly or just simply without thinking, which will manifest as, as carelessness, without having a real understanding of how uh, language you know, guides everything. You know, I tell people, you know, 
you, you talk to other people using words, obviously. You talk to yourself using words, even when you're not talking, because you think using words. We don't think in shapes or colors. So having an understanding of language and its impact is absolutely crucial. And we'll never get as good at that as, as we should be. I mean, with, with me, I've, I've been in this game a long time. I'm still working on that, not just in terms of, of how I talk to others, but primarily uh, how I'm using language. Uh, and it's when we sort of get lazy uh, and we fall into these patterns. Oh, I'm always this way. Or I used the example a moment ago. I can't help it. That's just the way I am. You know, just these, these stock phrases that are part of our internal vocabulary have such an impact on, you know, the causing us to accumulate certain attitudes, and most of us aren't even aware of it. So if we can just uh, impart a couple of ideas, A, there's this thing called mind skills, which means you can learn to use your mind more, uh, more skillfully, and you know, because that's, that suggests a whole spectrum of possibilities for a person. And then when we can talk about the, the importance of language uh, and how the wrong language you know, can, can lead us into some, some directions that are, are not helpful. And you notice I'm so conspicuously not using terms like positive. And so Mike, after all the people that you've worked with, the thousands of people that you have coached, and I know there's not just a one size fits all, but if we can just briefly just touch on success habits, what would you say are the things that seem to come up you know, all the time? What are the, the ones that are the most common that you can look at and say, you know what, these are success habits that seem to be perennial? Um, well, I think the first one would be uh, specificity. Specificity in all things. Uh, specificity relates to goal setting, obviously. It's when people talk about SMART goals using that acronym, you know, uh, that's the S. It's the first thing. You know, you, you have to be specific about what it is you're moving towards. Otherwise, you're not moving towards necessarily anything. Or you, you, you can be moving, but you just may be moving in, in a circle. And specificity also relates to language, which obviously we're just talking about. But uh, the more uh, intentional we are with the things that we say uh, and that ultimately allows us to start taming our own mental landscape because think things are the problem with a phrase like intention or intentionality it's kind of you know soft and, and new agey sounding you know to some people to, to me uh, you know, my, my training background started in, in a very specific uh, sort of real world context so I try to take as much of that with me when I'm interacting with people who have nothing to do with those original contexts. But because it's, it's the mind that we're always talking about, um, if, we, if we can't give these ideas shape, um, we, we can have problems. And one of the things I think that helps me uh, be effective is these are things that did not come naturally to me. Um, earlier in my life, when I talked to people who were sort of great conceptual thinkers and they were applying you know, concepts like mindfulness and so forth, you know, in their lives, they would explain it to me and it would just, just kind of go right over my head. Um, because I'm a, I'm somebody who needs to have things broken down 
very simply. Uh, I first started breaking things down for myself, which allows me now to, to break things down, hopefully in more you know, concrete or actionable uh, terms. So uh, everything in my mind gets back to this idea of specificity. You know, what is it that you want? Um, are, are you doing uh, what you need to, uh, to get there? I was at a, um, a couple of years ago, I was at the Hawkeye Wrestling Club, which is uh, on the campus of the University of Iowa in the Dan Gable uh, Wrestling Center. And it's an organization of post-collegiate athletes. They're training for international competition, so Worlds, the Olympics, that sort of thing. And so my, my first visit um, is I looked at these uh, very – uh, formidable young men. I asked a, a leading question. I said, um, how many people in here show of hands are elite athletes? You know, so of course, you know, everybody raised their hand. They probably thought it was some sort of, you know, uh, you know motivational uh, question. I said, okay. And then I started getting very specific. How many of you are tracking what you eat every day? every day, you know, and uh, nobody raised their hands because they weren't doing it every day. How many of you are tracking your sleeping habits every day? How many people know if they've gotten faster in the last six months? How many of you know if you've gotten stronger in the last six years? So I, I just had sort of this, this list of questions. And even if a couple of people were doing some of those things, I knew that none of them were doing all of those things. And so the finish was an elite athlete tracks all of those things. Would anyone disagree with that? You can't. Uh, I said, um, that's what an elite athlete does. What I'm looking at in front of me are a bunch of people who think they're elite athletes but aren't living like it, which was a pretty bold thing to say because we're just getting to know each other. But it was about uh, conveying the, the essence of specificity. I always tell people, control the controllables. There's a lot in life you cannot control. There's much more in your life that you can control. Start doing that. Always look, uh, look for work. Look for ways that you can improve your situation and control the controllable. So that was sort of where we started. And for me, the essence of success is specificity in all things, which also means understanding one's role in one's destiny, you know, the accountability, controlling the controllables. So it's not, uh, it's not like a, a high concept idea. It's very pragmatic. You know, it's, it's nuts and bolts. It's, it's about uh, just doing work. Now, we can get very deep into a whole bunch of sort of sub-disciplines over time. But uh, if I'm going to, you know, come into a room for an hour, hour and a half, those, those are the kinds of things that I'm going to point to with respect to success habits. So as we come to the end, Mike, and you might have already said, said it, but if you have to leave us with some parting words of motivation, what would you want everybody to take with them as they end this uh, session together. Fantastic. I, I love leaving it there. Uh, one of the things that I tell people 
is that if you are waiting for someone other than you to come along and motivate you, you're waiting on the wrong person. All motivation is self-motivation. You either want to do this or you don't, whatever the this happens to be. Now, the paradox within that is you're not going to want to do all of the stuff required to get you to this all the time, which, of course, is, is where discipline comes in. Um, there are certain phrases that are tricky for me. Now we're getting to language and specificity, and I'll try to keep this concise. Words like motivation and words like confidence, uh, we all think we know what we're talking about when we use those words, but depending on you know, who the other person in the conversation is, uh, I have learned that there, there can be quite a spectrum. So um, the, the, the search for specificity and clarity and understanding uh, must, must be ongoing. And when it comes to you know, feeling motivated, uh, when you have that feeling, enjoy that feeling because it's great. And you'll get a lot of work done. Uh, when you don't have that feeling, even better. I like to see what people do when they're not feeling motivated, when this just feels like a grind, when this is starting to feel, you know, maybe like it's not as attainable as I thought it was when I first started. I love seeing what people can conjure out of themselves in those moments. And I think when we, we and again, we're going places that are uncomfortable, you know, the self-examination, maybe I don't want to know how how well I'll perform when I'm not motivated because I don't believe that I'll perform well and that bothers me. So, you know, confronting that which is uncomfortable, controlling the controllables, taking full ownership for everything and getting clear, getting specific on absolutely everything, I think will take most people a very long way. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.